Fine cuisine for the amateur radio community. This is Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast. My name is Richard, and I am your host, uh, KB5JBV, if you want to go look it up. Thank you all for downloading us. Uh, let me tell you, I know, we, I know we are reasonably popular out there because as of the recording of this episode, episode 25 is well on its way to being one of our most popular episodes. Uh, as of the time of recording here, there's been 680, 680 downloads via FeedBurner and iTunes. And I really do appreciate all of you being here. The hurricane, well, let me tell you, you know, the news media spent so much time blowing these last two hurricanes out of proportion, the two that came up into the Gulf. Oh, my God, it's going to wipe out New Orleans. Oh, my God, it's going to wipe out Houston. Now, I understand any hurricane is a bad storm, but not near as bad as they've made them out to be. And I may be a little jaded because here in North Texas, 100-mile-an-hour microburst or downburst, we have two or three of those a year in DFW just from thunderstorms. You know, between thunderstorm, between uh, lightning, rain, High winds and uh, hail, you know, we got it pretty bad. I'd like to say hello to my friends in Oklahoma because they get it pretty bad up there too. And even the folks out in Massachusetts and Virginia because, yeah, their hurricanes are longer lived. They might not be as intense, but they last longer, so they can quite often be a bigger pain in the butt. Well, y'all listened to me when I said send feedback. Uh, we actually have quite a bit of feedback here, and uh, I'm glad to see it. I want to read this one first from my friend Randy, uh, K7AGE, out west. Uh, Randy's a good guy. If y'all haven't checked out his videos over on YouTube, go over there and take a look. He's got quite a few uh, really good videos on amateur radio. He says, Richard, I just finished uh, listening to episode 25. After hearing the first ra- your your first radio logic, I agree that a two meter FM HT is a. You know what? I bet I can get rid of that extra noise. Holy mackerel! Let's try it again. <laughs> I just realized it when the music faded out. Um, after hearing your first radio logic, I agree that 2 meter FM HT is a good choice for first radio. I remember when I got my general license after my novice expired by a couple of years. 
My dad was a ham with a Johnson transmitter and a Hallicrafter receiver. I was in college and at the time during the 70s FM craze. 73 magazine was almost an inch thick. Yeah, ain't that near that thick now. I had some college mates that were on FM, and that's what I wanted to do. I had no interest in HF. I had worked a lot of CW as a novice, but FM was it. I bought a used, used converted RCA car phone, one-channel mobile radio, for probably $25 without a control head. Built a control head for it, and wired, the, wired an extra tube for channel 2. It was all set for 146.94 simplex and the local 2888 repeater. The radio worked great. I even moved it from the car to the house a couple times to get on the air with the gang. Moving the radio was a chore, big at 25 tubes. Then I bought a standard HT, 5 channel, 1 watt, and I was set. Now more, cha now more channels usable in the house from the pizza joint after club meetings and the car. External antenna, external 12 volts, it was great. Then the next big step was I got rid of the RCA and got a Regency HR2B with crystals. One or two channels at the time. And one or two channels at a time until the crystals cost more than the radio. Then the ultimate step. I built a GLB synthesizer kit and then no more crystals. Those were fun days. Got in cheap, learned the operation, and stepped up to the HT, which I had for years. Now, lots of HTs. FT-51, THD-7, uh, VX2, DJ296, some little standard in the stuffed away, and now wanting the new VX8R. So HT, great first radio. Everyone probably ends up with several. Look for something common with low-cost accessories. Great show. Keep up the work. Randy, K7AGE. Well, thank you, Randy, and it's nice to know that uh, somebody that's been around a while other than myself feels that the HT is a good first radio. I myself had dozens around here at one point. I've been gradually selling some of that stuff off to finance this particular production, but it's nice to know that uh, you think that I was on the mark. And like I said, y'all go over to YouTube and check out some of Randy's videos, k 7 a G E. Uh, I found them to be quite informative. Next one up is from Ray, KJ4CNN. Just a short note to show my appreciation for your last podcast where you spoke about the Humble HT. I'm a new ham with the ink on my general ticket still drying. I didn't want to spend a lot of money on amateur radio gear until I knew I was going to stay in the hobby. Well, let me tell you, once you're in, you have to die to get out. So, I bought a used ICOM, dual-band HT, for $130 on eBay. And that, that opened up a couple repeaters for me in the Washington, D.C. area. I then bought a mag mount, three-fifths wa wavelength antenna, 
for about 20 bucks and a 2 meter Mirage amplifier for $15 from uh, my amateur radio club's flea market. Later, a new MFJ power supply. Later, a home-brewed electrical connector. And I had my first 2-meter, 70-centimeter station with which I hit a ton of repeaters. One repeater in particular in Bluemont, Virginia, allows me to hit parts of West Virginia and Pennsylvania when the propagation gods are on my side. That entire station, which is based on an ICOM ICW2A, handheld cost me less than $250. Completely hooked on amateur radio, I ended up buying a used 10 meter mobile radio, a used MFJ antenna tuner, and I homebrewed an in-fed wire antenna, which has given me some nice QSOs from South Carolina, Illinois, West Virginia, Massachusetts, and Quebec. I can't wait until 10 meter band, the 10 meter band opens up. That complete rig cost me less than $200. And recently I bought a used FT-101EX boat anchor radio that will give me coverage from 80 meters up to 10 meters for $235 including shipping and handling. I've homebrewed a multiband I, I will homebrew a multiband dipole antenna for that rig and be ready to talk on almost every frequency available to me. Although I know, although I now have some very nice, well functioning radio equipment, it all started with the Humble HT for less than $250. Even if you consider all the equipment that I have. I'm still under $700. Your podcast was right on the money, and I'm glad that you validated my approach by getting into amateur radio by talking to us about the HT. It's a great way to enter the hobby, and it doesn't have to be expensive. There is a ton of good equipment out there that is also reasonably priced. By the way, your podcast is getting better all the time, and the music that you feature is absolutely fabulous. I'm 58 years old and I'm shaking my body all around when I hear that good old rock and roll music that you play. Man, that's a sight that you wouldn't forget very soon. Ray, KJ4CNN. Well, let me tell you, Ray, I told everybody dancing days were here again and they are. Shoot, we're even down in the 80s here locally which uh, this time of year is really surprising. But uh, I guarantee me dancing around a ham shack could leave an impression in your mind's eye that make you want to gouge it out. Thank you for the email, though. And uh, I'm telling you, I started with an HT. There's a whole lot of people out there that started with HTs. At one point, I had so much equipment around here that I didn't know what to do with it all. And, in fact, I sold a a big bunch of it off and ended up with stuff that I could use. So, our next uh, email is from Don. Richard, I'm I'm a relative new listener to your podcast. I've learned something new each time I've listened. I don't worry too much about whether someone... Oh, don't worry too much about whether someone thinks 
the podcast don't have that polished feel towards them. To me, the content is more important than the re- the audio sounds like. Yeah, y'all really going to yell about that air conditioner running a while ago. I agree on what you said about not getting the latest and greatest transceiver with all the bells and whistles in them. The person new to the hobby is not going to need them and probably want them. In the 24 years that I have been licensed, I have never spent more than a couple of hundred dollars on a rig. My first rig was a Halicrafter HT32 with an R90 receiver. When the R90 died, I got got a used FT-101. I still have the FT-101. I'm not sure if it still works. It's been in the closet for the past several years. To me, it's not how much you spend, but how much enjoyment you get out of what you spend. That hits it right on the head. That hits the nail right on the head, Don. It's not how much you spend. It's how much enjoyment you get out of what you spend. I'm one of those you mentioned that don't own a rig that operates above 30 megahertz. I work strictly HFQRP. The bands above 30 megahertz hold no interest for me. I'm an Air Force retiree who has worked point-to-point HF during his career. Thus, I get my enjoyment in HF, especially QRP. In case you're wondering, I live in western Washington, about 30 miles northwest of Mount Rainier. Now, see, we were talking about hurricanes a while ago. The ground shakes out there, uh, Don, so you're a braver man than I am. But thank you. And yes, that right there, I'm sitting here looking at my my current HF rig. I had a Kenwood TS-440S for years and finally upgraded to an FT-897 and half of the functions on it I'll never use if I could figure out what they were. But thank you for the email. And let's see who we got next. We got Joe, N-E-2-Z. Which, uh, Joe drops a short note. Your podcast tastes just fine. Even if you, let's see, even if you feel the recipe is not fully formulated yet, just go with the ingredients you're comfortable with. Even if you need to be eclectic. The podcast is most enjoyable when we hear you comfortable on the other end. Just be yourself. Well, I try my best to be myself and try to be relaxed and comfortable when I'm talking to y'all because y'all are all my friends. And that's exactly the advice I gave to KD0BIK over Practical Amateur Podcast. You know, he was a little uptight when he first got started, but he's been loosening up and loosening up, and his shows have been getting better and better. Uh, it's nice to have a little competition out there. But thank you. Next, we have an email from Neil. Neil in Sugarland, Texas. Hi, Richard. I thought I'd drop a line. I'm a newbie and will test for my tech in general in the next month or so. Will you go for it, Neil? My interests probably aren't in line with most, though, as I'm interested in code and DX over HF. I have a feeling I'll get into digital pretty quickly once I get my feet wet. I really enjoy your podcast. The music is great, 
And I like the Texas drawl. Okay, if you like it, let me do it again. Drawl. The more technical shows are the ones that I like the best so far. I thought the Amateur Code episode was pretty spot on, too. I just set up my HF rig, bought second hand, and I'm hearing too many jammers on side single sideband. Not cool. Keep up the good work, old man. Best regards, Neil in Sugarland, Texas, and he said he'll sign up on the Frapper map when he gets his license. Well, Neil, you keep us informed. Let us know when you get that license. And Sugarland, yeah. Uh, I was doing a store setup, a uh, northern tool out on 59 down there, and had to drive uh, past the penitentiary and the, the sugar refinery down there. And uh, it sure is nice down in there. Uh, my cousin lives in the woodlands, and he tells me the refinery is not there anymore. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. Uh, this would be from, who would this be from? This would be from Art, K5JLB. I sent a donation yesterday from my PayPal account. I sure appreciate your podcast. I've been a ham. I've been a ham now for two for more than two years and really enjoy the hobby both my wife roberta kc0ylo are hams and we just we're just getting started in doing some psk and other digital modes it's sure a hobby that will keep you busy it is the hobby of a lifetime that was me thank you again for the great podcast art K5JLB. Well, Art, thank you. And yes, it's the hobby of a lifetime. You can pursue different aspects of this hobby the rest of your life and never do all of it. It is fantastic. It is wonderful. It is the hobby of the 21st century. And I know y'all think I'm kind of full of ham radio, but, you know, you got to be full of something. And I'd rather be uh, accused of being full of that than other things. And incidentally, I don't normally talk about the amount of contributions uh, unless somebody tells me it's okay. However, in this case, I would like to make a point. Uh, Apparently, you know, we're on the, if an episode is valuable to you, donate a dollar. Well, apparently Art feels that all 25 episodes before this one were valuable to him. And... You know, I understand gas prices, everything else. I don't want to preach and harp on this. We've got several ways to make it happen. You can go over to BlackSparrowMedia.com and use one of the donation links. You can go uh, to the um, you can go to the uh, to Amazon using the link over at BlackSparrowMedia.com and make a purchase which gets you something for the same price you'd get it anyway and we get a little piece of it you can go over to uh, cafe press to our resident frequency store over there at cafe press and uh, purchase a shirt with the podcast logo on it i know the prices are look a little high over there but we don't get but a couple dollars off of that everything else is cafe press or you could just send a dollar per episode, however you might like. I know some of you have a little trepidation about uh, putting your 
uh, credit card numbers or debit card numbers or that kind of thing into PayPal? Well, the one thing I have to say to that is if uh, you don't want to you if you want to make a donation and you do not want to use PayPal, I'm good in the call book. That right there is the just as easy as anything else. I'm good in the call book. Kilo Echo 5, no, Kilo Bravo 5, Juliet Bravo Vector, KB5 JBV, I'm good at QRZ. You got, There's even a picture of my magic zip cord antenna over there, so y'all can go take a look at that too. Someday I'll tell y'all about the magic zip cord antenna. But the whole point is, we're, we've got a new computer on the, or well, not a new computer, but a better computer on the way. Uh, we're $40 away from our new microphone so that we can make this sound a little better for y'all. Uh, it's got a flatter response, so it won't, uh, won't sound, I don't like the way this one sounds. Anyway, but with that, we'll, we'll go ahead and drop it. But y'all send those donations in. Keep this feedback coming, because I really appreciate it. If you want to leave feedback but you don't want to send an email you go over to blacksparrowmedia.com the forums are up over there uh, you can leave episode feedback uh, show suggestions we have a couple of places open down there and as people show up and start discussing different topics we're going to open more more boards off to the side currently we have uh, i think a digital board a general discussion board uh an atv board going and, you know, y'all come on over. Let's build a community. Let's get people talking about resonant frequency, the amateur radio podcast, and discussing amateur radio. We're all in this together for the Elmerin thing. That's what it's all about. And speaking of Elmerin, let me uh, warn y'all that here in the next couple weeks, Russ, K5TUX, and myself will be releasing episode one of Linux in the Ham Shack. Linux in the Ham Shack. You know, since most of us radio operators want to try and get in as inexpensively as possible and get the most out of what we've got, it uh, makes good sense to run Linux on an older machine that you can pick up pretty cheap. I just picked up a 2.6 gigahertz machine, which is the one I'll be using to record when it gets here, for 80 bucks. 80 bucks, good to go. Got a copy of Windows on it, even though I'll wipe it out and put Linux on it. And uh, you can't hardly beat that. I record the shows over here. Well, sitting on sitting in front of me right now is a 1.2 gig machine, a 1.3 big gig machine, and 1.6 gig machine, gigahertz. And uh, that's what I use here in the ham shack. So uh, y'all stay tuned. We'll make the announcement over at Resonant Frequency. We'll put some uh, discussion boards up over there when we get the first episode out. And uh, y'all listen to Linux in the Ham Shack with Russ, K5TUX, and Richard, KB5JBV, when it comes out in a few weeks. Last but not least, uh, we want to go ahead and tell you about our guest. Our guest, we've got a guest doing the main segment this time around. And uh, that would be Ron, VK2DQ. Ron is a uh, uh, founder, and uh, I guess he's still an instructor over at, what is that? Radio and Electronic School. Radio and Electronic School. That's uh, 
online website at www.radioelectronicschool.net. And at the end of electronic, it is 1S, not 2, uh, electronicschool.net. And you go over and take a look at uh, look at Ron's site. He's going to talk talk to us about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. A little bit higher level thing, but you know I know some of y'all enjoy it. Hopefully, most of you'll enjoy it. Ron Ron seems to be a really nice guy. I'm snapping that pen again, ain't I? Y'all need to whoop me over that. Okay. Also, uh, he sent us a an article on the off center off center fed dipole. I don't know why we can't just say Wyndham antenna, but off center fed dipole. And we've posted that over at BlackSparrowMedia.com. So y'all go on over there and give that a read. It's pretty interesting. And uh, that pretty much seems to be everything I have on my list at this point. As usual, y'all know, I'm going to remember something. And when I remember it, I'll write it down so I can put it in, put it at the end of the end of the podcast now for those of y'all who haven't tuned out and those of y'all who haven't gone to sleep on me if you'll just hang in there we'll get back with you right after the break time on the segment formerly known as what buzzword let's talk about the multimeter uh volton meter the one indispensable piece of test equipment everybody should have in their shack okay uh, i i got to thinking about it and i 
been getting some questions about why don't you uh, do some segments on test equipment, and I've been looking towards that, and I, it came to me that the one instant, one piece of test equipment that I have found indispensable over the years is the volt ohm meter, simply because I use it for so many things, not just in my amateur radio endeavors, but also in my... Uh, uh, home repair endeavors and I've even had jobs where I would carry it to work with me to do uh, things that my bosses would ask me to do. So at the very least for you new guys, well let's do it this way. I have three volt ohm meters. I have one that's pocket size that I can carry in my pocket out on out at field day or whatever, carry in my jump kit. Um, a fairly low-end, small volt-ohm meter that if it gets damaged, it's not a huge loss. I also have a really nice Gardner Bender uh, digital volt-ohm meter, which I purchased when I was doing work in, of all places, Lowe's, and I kept walking past it every day and simply had to have it. But the one that's done me the best job is my Micronta, 22-214-Alpha Multitester. And for those of you who don't who don't know who Micronta is, Micronta was the electronics branch of Tandy or Radio Shack. Uh, the majority of their stuff carried the Micronta label. So it's a Radio Shack uh, volt-on meter. However, uh, it was a pretty good middle-of-the-road volt-ohm-meter when I purchased it and has served me well for almost 20 years now. Okay, uh, for the new guys and you guys that have been around, y'all bear with me. We'll get through the segment and y'all, y'all can get something a little higher in. Uh, for the new guys, at the very least, you want a volt-ohm-meter around your shack because you can test continuity with it. So on the most basic level, oh look, they're chirping down on 30 meters. Um, at the most basic level, you can use it to test continuity. Or simply, more simply put, you can check to see if you have a bad wire. Uh, in the case of coax, if you take it and touch it on one end of the co touch the probes on one end of the coax and on the other end of the coax, you'll be able to see if that coax is good. It doesn't have any breaks in it. If you touch it to the center conductor and the braid at the same time, you can check and see and make sure that you don't have a short somewhere uh, where the braid and the coax are touching. Same way with your audio cables. You can use it to check it for continuity. That's the most basic thing you can do with a voltometer. This one here actually... Uh, not only does it check continuity, it check, has five ranges for uh, resistance, five ranges for DC voltage, five ranges for DC amperage, and four ranges for AC voltage. Uh, that way you don't blow the crystals out of the back of it. Oh yeah, this one's old enough. It's got uh, actually an analog needle on it with a nice smooth jewel movement. So, there's not a whole lot more we can really say about this particular piece of test equipment without getting super advanced. 
My suggestion would be that y'all go on out and purchase yourself one. They all come with instructions. The higher end they are, the better the instructions are going to be. You can find plenty of information out on the web. Or if you have a Elmer at your local club, you can have him take your hand and uh, show you the ropes. But, like I said, this is probably the number one most indispensable piece of test equipment in your radio room. So, even though you may start out uh, low end, eventually you're going to want to upgrade it. Okay. Well, that I know it's a pretty short buzzword, but we're going to hop on out of it. I'm, I'm afraid our next segment might run a little long, so... We're going to go ahead and uh, move on to the next segment. Good evening. This is Ron VK2DQ, and tonight I'd like to talk to you about measurements and the accuracy of measurements and something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Before we go there, I would like to talk a little bit about Werner Heisenberg, who at the age of 27 years announced his Uncertainty Principle. As far as scientists go, I think that Werner Heisenberg was pretty cool. He was young, he was a genius, and he was a radical. 
Heisenberg was born in Duisburg, Germany, on December the 5th, 1901. From his youth, he had right-wing sympathies in the unsettled days following World War I. He was not too scholarly to engage in street fights against the communists in Munich. In later years, he found outlets for his physical energies in becoming an enthusiastic mountain climber. He worked under such scientists as Niels Bohr and Arnold Summerfield and got his PhD in 1923. Bohr and Summerfield in those days were trying to work out the picture of the atom. They were trying to visualise a model for the atom. Heisenberg, a bit of an upstart, decided that it was not possible to be able to predict or visualise a model of the atom. It couldn't be known, he said. We humans don't like to have abstract things. We humans like to be able to paint pictures of things, make drawings of things and create visual images. Heisenberg was saying when it comes to the atom and other things as small as the atom, this becomes impossible. Heisenberg developed what he called the uncertainty principle. So let's now talk about what Heisenberg meant about the uncertainty principle. The basic principle is this. The very act of measurement alters the quantity being measured. I'll say that again because it's that important. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle says the very act of measuring alters the quantity being measured. In other words, we want to measure something. We might want to measure voltage. We might want to measure current. And the act of measuring the voltage or the current changes the voltage or current that we are trying to measure. So in fact, we can never really, if Heisenberg is correct, we can never really exactly measure anything. It just doesn't apply to voltage or current. It applies to everything, even the length of something, the speed of something, the position of something, the weight of something. Heisenberg was saying, no matter what it is you're trying to measure, the very act of taking a measurement alters what you're trying to measure. The finer the measurement, the greater the uncertainty. So if you're trying to measure very, very small things like atoms or even electrons, then the act of measuring such tiny things alters so much what you're trying to measure that the measurement is impossible or meaningless. We can even apply this to everyday measurements. Take, for example, a bathtub full of hot water. We want to measure the temperature of the water in a bathtub. The easiest way to do this would be to take a thermometer at room temperature and insert it into the bathtub. When we place the thermometer at room temperature into the water in the bathtub, it draws heat from the water. Heat travels from the water in the bathtub to the thermometer until the thermometer is at the same temperature as the water. So when the thermometer finally registers a temperature, 
the temperature is slightly less than the temperature was before the thermometer was inserted. The act of inserting the thermometer into the bathtub of water reduced the temperature of the water that we were trying to measure. This difficulty might be circumvented if the thermometer happened to be exactly at the temperature of the water in the bathtub to begin with. But in that case, how would you know the right temperature to begin with unless you measured it first? Of course, the thermometer might just happen to be at the right temperature. And you could tell that because after insertion into the water, the reading would remain the same as before. The thermometer would neither gain nor lose heat, and the temperature of the water would remain as it was, and you would have a true and exact temperature. You wouldn't even have to rely on pure chance. You could, for instance, perform a thought experiment. We could divide our sample of water into independent samples, each at the same temperature as the rest. We can then stick thermometers into each of the samples, each thermometer being carefully warmed in advance to a different temperature at, say, one degree intervals. One of these thermometers will register the same temperature before and after it's placed into the sample of water, in which case we would have a true and exact measurement. Of course, what we have here is true and exact to the nearest degree. Now, to the nearest degree is not exact. We could work with thermometers warmed to tenths of degrees or even hundredths of degrees. But even if we went to this extreme, we would never ever be able to exactly measure the temperature of the water because we could only say we are measuring to the nearest tenth, the nearest one-hundredth, or even the nearest millionth of a degree, which is not exact. Another everyday example of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is tyre pressure. If you want to measure the air pressure within a tyre, you insert a tyre gauge onto the valve. Now whenever you do that, no matter what type of tyre gauge or pressure measuring instrument you use, some of the air pressure is let out of the tyre in order to take that measurement. It might only be a minuscule amount of air that is released into the measuring instrument, but nevertheless some of the air is released that means the tyre pressure that's measured is less than the tyre pressure really was before the measurement. So the act of taking a measurement changes what you are trying to measure. And this always applies no matter what the measurement is. For most everyday measurements, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle really just doesn't matter. We really don't need to know the temperature of the bath water to a billionth of a degree or exactly. We do not need to know the tyre pressure exactly. So for most everyday measurements, we get sufficient 
accuracy of measurement without considering the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. However, in amateur radio and electronics, we always have to bear in mind the influence or effect that our measuring instrument is having upon the measurement we are trying to take. And a good example is voltmeters or ammeters. We measure the current in a circuit by breaking the circuit and inserting into it an ammeter. And the ammeter completes the circuit so the current can flow. If the ammeter has resistance, and every ammeter does have some resistance, then the mere act of inserting an ammeter into a circuit can reduce the current that we're trying to measure. Because the measuring instrument, in this case the ammeter, is adding resistance to the circuit and thereby reducing the current that we are trying to measure. A perfect ammeter then would have zero resistance and there is no such ammeter. Just in passing, notice that we call an instrument that measures current an ammeter, not an amp meter. Take a voltmeter. Suppose we had a string of resistors in series with a current flowing through them and we wanted to measure the voltage across one of those resistors. We place a voltmeter in parallel with one of those resistors. The resistance in that part of the circuit then is now altered because by placing the voltmeter in parallel with the resistor we in fact have two parallel resistors now and we have reduced the resistance in that part of the circuit. The ideal or perfect voltmeter would have infinite resistance. If you place an infinite resistance across one megaohm, you've still got one megaohm. Suppose your voltmeter is one megaohm and you place your voltmeter across a one megaohm resistor, then by placing that voltmeter there, the effective resistance in that part of the circuit is now half a megaohm or 500,000 ohms. So the act of measuring voltage can actually change the voltage you're trying to measure. Some of the very modern voltmeters have a very, very high impedance in the order of 40 megaohms. And some of the really, really good ammeters have a very, very low resistance in the order of a few, uh, one or two milliohms. However, we still, when taking measurements as radio amateurs, always need to consider what effect our measuring instrument, no matter what it is, is having upon the measurement that we are trying to measure. So in a way, we have to consider the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Werner Heisenberg wasn't talking about voltmeters, ammeters, bathtubs or tyres. However, his uncertainty principle applies to them as equally as it does to what he was really concerned about. Bohr and Summerfield were looking to create a model, a visualisation of the atom. And Heisenberg was saying the act of looking at the atom changed what you were seeing. The act of looking at an atom made it into something different 
than what it was before you tried to look at it. Let's talk about this for a moment. Suppose you didn't know what a potato was, what a spud was. You've never seen a spud, never seen a potato in your life. And I provide you with some potatoes, but you can't see them. And I give you a hammer and ask you to work out everything about a potato by not looking at it, but by hitting it with a hammer. I allow you to look at the debris. I allow you to look at the crushed potato after it's been struck by a hammer. I dare say it would be very difficult for you to describe and tell me much about the potato from the debris left over from whacking it with a hammer. This is very analogous to what atomic physicists are trying to do when they look at the atom. In order to look at the atom, they have to bombard it. They have to bombard it with subatomic particles. They have to bombard the atom with neutrons or electrons or some other subatomic particle. And that's like hitting the potato with a sledgehammer. The atom blasts apart, flies apart, and what they get to see is the debris. In fact, all they really get to see is the trails left by all the particles flying off when the atom is busted up. And from that, they've got to try and deduce the structure of the atom. Consider, for instance, the electron, which is the particle that we are interested in because electron gives us electronics, electronics gives us uh, radio and so on. A moving electron is actually what creates an electromagnetic wave. So consider the electron. It has a mass of 9.1 by 10 to the minus 28 grams. This is, as far as we know, a rock bottom minimum mass. No object that possesses mass at all possesses less mass than an electron. So how are we going to look at an electron to find out about it? We might want to determine the position of an electron or we might want to determine the velocity of an electron. The normal way of determining the velocity or position of something is to look at it. When we look at something, we direct photons of light at the object and the photons bounce off the object, come back to our eye and, and we see it, or back to the microscope and we see it. An ordinary object is not appreciably affected by the light it reflects, but an electron is so small that it could be strenuously affected by that light. The idea, therefore, would be to use a very faint beam of light, one so faint that the electron would not be appreciably affected. Unfortunately, there is a limit to light's faintness. Just as mass becomes in thus so small units, so does all forms of energy. The least amount of light that we can use is one photon. And if we try to send a photon of ordinary light at an electron, the wavelength associated with that photon is so long that it steps over or goes around the electron and we cannot see it. In order to look at an electron, we would have to use a much shorter wavelength. We would have to use a gamma ray. Gamma rays are also photons, but at a much shorter wavelength. But the shorter the wavelength of a photon, the greater the energy content. Trying to look at an electron with a 
gamma ray or a photon at gamma wave wavelength is like trying to look at an electron by hitting it with a sledgehammer. So here is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where it really does count the most. We might be able to determine the position of an electron at a given moment, but the very act of that determination alters the velocity of that same electron at the same moment, so we cannot be sure what the velocity is. There are lessons to be learned from Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. The lesson for us as radio amateurs is, even in the real world, we have to always consider the effect that our measuring device is having upon the measurement we are trying to take. The other thing that I think is worthwhile to realise is that we as humans like to visualise things. We like to have things as pictures. We like to describe things in visual form. And there are many models of the atom. It's worthwhile remembering that Heisenberg said we could never ever look at an atom because the act of looking at it changes it. So these models are just that. They are models. Any physical picture or visualisation of the atom is just a model. It's just a model that works and fits the current theory. We really, really don't know what an atom looks like. We've created a number of models which describe how the atom behaves. For example, the Bohr model has a central nucleus and, and whirring electrons around the outside of that nucleus. That is a model that fits a lot of explanations in electricity about how electricity works, but it is just a model. The atom really doesn't look like that at all. We don't know what the atom looks like. Thank you very much. This has been Ron, VK2DQ, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.
the amateur radio podcast yep don't want to be your beast of burden okay well let me remind you that ron bk2 dq uh has a site where you can go check things out radio and electronics school at www.radioelectronicsschool.net one word you can come over and check out that off-center-fed dive pole article he sent us over at uh, blacksparrowmedia.com. If you have comments, suggestions, feedback of any kind, send it to Richard. No, send it to kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com or kb5jbv at gmail.com. It'll get to me both ways. Or go over to the forums at blacksparrowmedia.com. Uh, yes, we do uh, ask people to register for the forums, but your information is not going to be shared in any way. It's set up that way to keep the spammers out. With that, I think uh, we've pretty much got everything covered. Uh, we'd like to thank Iota PromoNet for the music heard on this episode of Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Ron, VK2DQ, for uh, his contributions. Uh, it's my understanding that KI6BGE, Tim, is working on uh, working on a guest segment also. And if any of y'all have a guest segment, send that bad boy on in. We'll, we'll fire it up. We may, uh, may cut the music off either end, but uh, that do happen sometime. All right. Gave you the emails. Gave you the uh, website. I'd like to thank my wife for not killing me in the process of this because this has been a really rough go. Thank you, Bill Gates, for this being the fourth time I've had to record, uh, uh, well, not this segment, but the opening segment. And uh, I sure will be glad when that new computer gets here. When the microphone gets here, it'll be even better. Uh, doesn't look like we have anything else other than if you want to send a donation to Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast, there are multiple ways to do it. Go over to BlackSparrowMedia.com and check it out. Or if you're not comfortable with PayPal, then uh, like I said, I'm good in the call book. With that, I think we've pretty much covered everything for this time. I look forward to seeing y'all next time. Keep that feedback coming. And uh, I guess we'll... See if we survive another bout of bad weather. Y'all uh, take care of your family. Take care of yourself. And we'll see you next time around. 73, everybody.
We gotta go.